Open your Bibles to the end of Romans chapter 4. Paul's been uh, communicating about the life of Abraham. Paul's making the point that, especially to those who have a, a Jewish background in his audience, uh, he's writing this letter to a church in, uh, in Rome. Um, and in that church, there are people with a Jewish background and there are people with the Roman religion, Greek religion, other uh, just forms of spirituality, and they've got that background. And all these people from different spiritual backgrounds are coming together under the gospel. And Paul's reminding them the gospel has a completely different approach to God than the way that generic religion does, which is based on what we do. And there's even this assumption that, well, in the Old Testament, people were made right with God and had a relationship with God based on what they do. And Paul's saying, well, let's look at Abraham, you know, um, this monumental figure in the history of Judaism and, as it turns out, in Islam and certainly within Christianity as we, as we embrace the Old Testament. So let's look further at uh, Paul's remarks about Abraham. And starting in verse 13, let's stand in honor of God's word. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Father, would you bless your word uh, this morning? Would you let it take root in our hearts uh, in a deeper way and bear more fruit as we live in light of your mercy and as as you use our lives to show uh, the world what your mercy looks like. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. This is a, a great... Uh, a picture of, of how God works and relates uh, to fallen people. And Abraham's, this, uh, this example, Abraham's lifted up as this hero, a religious hero, 
But Paul's reminding everybody, look, um, his relationship with God isn't based on his religious heroics. Uh, it's really based on God's grace to him and his mercy. So let's talk about God's promises to Abraham, and then I want to switch gears and talk about God's promises to us. This is a, a big story about God's faithfulness and his promises. So um, first, I just want to talk about how a promise is a promise. And, you know, you and I have heard that before. Uh, and a promise is a promise is a, just a way of us saying that a promise is different from an agreement. A promise is, uh, a promise is one person saying, I'm going to do this for you. And no matter what you do, I'm giving you my word and I'm going to follow through with what I'm saying. Uh, and that's what makes a promise unique and what makes it fall into the category of what we could call a covenant. And that's different from a contract. Uh, if you've got a contract, you've got one person saying, well, I'll do this. And the other person saying, I'll do this in return. And if either of those two parties falls short, the other person can say, you know, I'm out. That's how a contract works. A covenant's different because a promise is a promise. And a promise is somebody saying, I'm going to pledge myself to do this. And it doesn't depend on how, you know, you uphold your end of the promise. It's just a matter of me saying, my word is my bond. God does that. You know, and this is the whole point here in verses 13 and 14. If, if the promise was based on Abraham being a good guy, being um, you know, a really religious person, upholding his end of the deal, Paul says that that makes faith null. It makes the promise void. It's, um, it's, it empties the promise of what, its mean, of what its meaning is. Instead, Paul's saying, no, God made a promise to Abraham, and it didn't depend on Abraham. It depended on God. So when we look at the promise of God to Abraham, um, Hebrews talks uh, and reflects on a lot of the Old Testament uh, characters, it talks about faith, it talks about God's promises. In chapter 6, we're told that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, like Abraham and Sarah, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, uh, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, to hold fast to the hope that he will hold me fast. Um, so that's, that's uh, another way of reflecting on the fact that, well, God makes a promise, and, you know, we can take God at his word, right? And God is gracious enough not only to promise us, and we can rely on that and take that to the bank, but then he goes and he makes an oath uh, to kind of double up uh, the promise, and we can trust that. Um, that's just how the covenant works. It's not based on us. Uh, and God's not watching us saying, I'm, you know, are you going to uphold your end of the bargain? And so it makes grace a little bit dangerous um, because people start thinking, well, then that means I can just do whatever I want, right? Paul gets to that later on in Romans. But just for now, keep in mind, God says he's going to do something. He's going to do it. So what does he want to do for Abraham? Right? What's, what's the promise to Abraham? What's Abraham believing as it relates to God saying, I'm going to do this? Look in verses uh, 16 through 18. Um, in, your, uh, in your Bibles or in the passage we printed in the bulletin, you can see some dashes. And, uh, and the sentence is a little bit complicated. Look at those, think of those as parentheses. And I'm going to read the first part of verse 16 and then jump to the middle of 17 so you can get the, the main flow of thought. Uh, where Paul says, that is why 
because it's a promise, it's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, skip to 17, all his offspring in the presence of God, in the sight of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul's point about faith. And then in the parentheses, he's saying, you know, those who have the Jewish background and those who have the non-Jewish background, those who are adherents of the law and those who don't, they all share in the faith of Abraham when we are trusting God, the promise that he makes. Back to Abraham. What are the promises God made to him? Uh, we don't have time to look at Genesis 12 through, um, you know, 17, but those are the key chapters where on three different major occasions, God shows up and he says, Abraham, I'm going to do this for you. Abraham, I'm going to do this for you. Abraham, I'm going to do this for you. And among those things that God promises to him, he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the heir of the world. You saw that um, in verse 13. Abraham's the heir of the world. And that's a, that's a, that's an impressive title. Um, <laughs> can you imagine having the world as your inheritance? And, uh, and that's what God promised to Abraham. Uh, those are Paul's succinct way of summarizing that God promises Abraham all this land that would become, uh, that, that was the land of Canaan, that would become Israel's land. Um, it was the, the promise of many nations. It was the promise of all the peoples of the earth, etc. And, uh, and that promise, by the way, gets its ultimate fulfillment, not through Abraham, but through Jesus. You know, Abraham's the heir of the world. Well, look at Jesus. He's what the technical term is firstborn, not because there was a time when he wasn't and then he was born you know, of Mary. He was always existent. He's the eternally begotten son. But his title is firstborn, which means he has priority. He's, he gets the inheritance. And not just the earth, but everything. Cosmically, you know, he's the heir. And those who are joined to Jesus are co-heirs, which means something really bizarre if you stop and pause and consider for a second. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Abraham's the heir of the world. Jesus is the heir of everything. If I'm united to Jesus, I'm a co-heir of everything with Jesus. It's not a bad deal. Anyway, all right, what else? Heir of the world, father of many nations uh, is part of the promise, part of how it's expressed. Uh, You can, again, look in Hebrews chapter 11 this time where it says that therefore from one, one man and, and him as good as dead, meaning he was really old, were born descendants of as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So again, um, there's this image of God speaking to Abraham, saying, Abraham, look up in the sky, it's night, look at all the stars, you know, there's no street lights, there's no air pollution. You can imagine there are quite a few stars. And God says, you know, your kids are going to outnumber those. Look at the, look at the beach, and uh, your kids are going to outnumber the grains of sand. And ultimately, you know, Abraham is told he's the father of many nations. Uh, he is pointing us to Jesus again, who's not simply, you know, ruler of many nations, but all nations, king of kings, lord of lords, all nations belong to him. Uh, and then, Continuing with back to Abraham and, and looking at the funnel, uh, the, the concentration of the promise is Abraham and Sarah are going, all right, God, this is great. This sounds really impressive, and I'm, I'm honored, I'm blessed, but 
how's this going to work again? You know, I'm 100 years old. Sarah's, you know, just as old. And God says, well, you're going to have a son. His name's going to be Isaac, um, the son of laughter, which is great. And this is what you see in verses 19 and following. Um, Abraham didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. And when he considered the barrenness, uh, the, the literal word there, which is intentional, is deadness. So, you know, Abraham's as good as dead. Uh, Sarah's womb is dead. But, on the other hand, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised So what's important is that Abraham is believing in God's faithfulness, not just simply believing that he's going to get lots of really great blessings. That's good. But more importantly, I want you to see that the focus of Abraham's faith is in God's faithfulness, not just in, hey, in the sweet by and by, some really great things are going to happen to me. His faith isn't just sort of an optimism. His faith isn't just sort of a generic hope. His faith is in a person. It's in God to be faithful. And then ultimately we know that, all right, great. Abraham and uh, Sarah have a son named Isaac. Ultimately that's pointing to, you know, this impossible birth from a virgin named Mary. And he's the true son of promise. He's the true son of promise. So um, what's great about the promise is that Abraham doesn't, bring, doesn't have to bring anything to the table, um, which, is a, which is a good thing, too, because he didn't have anything to bring regardless. None of us do. That's why the gospel is a gospel of promise. It's God saying, I'm going to do this for you. You can't do anything to help yourself. Even if you wanted to, you can't. It's what sin's done to us, but, um, but God looks at us despite that and blesses us. So you've got this theme of the promise, God's promises to Abraham, and now I want to sort of turn the corner to what are the promises to us? Um, you know, that's God uniquely, directly ministering to Abraham, and all this stuff's going to happen as a result of, of his relationship with God. What about, you know, you and I living in this day and age? Well, um, we talk about living by the faith and living uh, by faith. And when we think about the faith, we're thinking about the promises of God to us. What's he going to do for us? What do we need to believe God to be faithful to do for us? Um, Paul concludes the whole uh, character study of Abraham in verses 22 and following when he says, this is why Abraham's faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. And last week we looked at that word counted really closely because it's a very important word and it's, it's, a, it's a technical term, financial even, economic, where God credits to Abraham's account rightness, considers Abraham to be correct and right with regard to God's expectations and standards. Not because Abraham actually kept the law himself, but because he trusted that God was going to provide mercy and forgive you know, his faults. And, and through that mercy, Abraham would have a relationship with God. That's what God promises us. Uh, in Jude 3, Jude only is one chapter, so there's not a chapter 1, verse 3, but just Jude 3. Uh, We're told to contend for the faith that was once for all 
delivered to the saints. And part of the faith that God promises to us is that he's going to give life to what is once dead. It's this whole picture of resurrection, right? Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead. You and I, uh, we're told, left to ourselves, are as good as dead. You know, the walking dead. Our souls are just sort of shriveled and, um, you know, dried up, hardened, uh, dead, because of the fact that we've turned away from God. I want to give you an example. And some of you, I think, have maybe seen this maybe on YouTube or whatever, but I just thought it was a helpful way of, of expressing what I'm talking about. When God made us, he made us pure, he made us clean, he made us good, he made us holy, he made us in a relationship with him, uh, and nothing was in the way of that relationship. It was, it was wonderful. It was, it was heavenly in the Garden of Eden. Um, and this was, this was not only good, it was very good, as God describes. And, and so God was with Adam and Eve. He had fellowship with his people. But what happened was that we don't exactly know how, but Adam and Eve decided God's not enough for us. We're not content just to have this pure, beautiful, holy relationship with our creator. We want something else. And, you know, that something else came in the form of temptation, sin. You know, there's kind of this mucky, nasty stuff inside what I would say is a pretty cup. I mean, that's often how sin comes to us. It doesn't come with the skull and crossbones uh, written on it. It comes in some kind of nice package, and that's what's alluring and, and attractive to us. And when the enemy came along and said, hey, Adam and Eve, God's holding out on you, they believed the enemy. They believed the lie, and they thought, you know, that's right. We need more. We need more than what God has promised. We need more than God himself. We need to look outside of God for salvation, for life, for fullness. That's, that's what's wrong with every human being on this planet is we're looking away from God to get what God said we can only have through him. And left to ourselves, this would remain our condition. But what we know to be true through the gospel is that God sent Jesus. Um, The next chapter in Romans 5, Paul's going to start talking about Jesus as a second Adam. This is great comparison. And what Jesus did for us is he came as the new Adam, the new uh, human representative, and did everything that God intended us to do as his image bearers, um, kept the law and loved perfectly and, you know, blessed and brought the kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. But instead of receiving blessing, you know what Jesus did was he took on our curse. This is what happened on the cross. When Paul uses that word, it was counted to him as righteousness, it means it was transferred, it was imputed, it was, you know, credited. And, and on the cross, Jesus took our sin on himself. Our sin was imputed to Jesus. Our sin was credited and accounted to Jesus, and he sucked it up like a sponge. He took it on himself. The second Adam came so that our sins could be forgiven. And Isaiah, it says that, 
we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us, you know, following our nose, going our own way. But the Lord laid on him, transferred to him, credited to him, imputed to him all of our iniquities. That's, that's the cross. And Paul says that Jesus was delivered up, you know, in these last verses here in chapter 4. He was delivered up um, for our trespasses. That's why he went to the cross. And that Jesus was raised for our justification. The cross, the miracle of the cross is that Jesus could say from the cross, it's finished. Nobody could ever say that left to themselves. It was Jesus who actually finished the work of justice on behalf of God's righteousness so that the the penalty for our sin was fully paid there was nothing left to pay, and that's why Jesus rose from the dead, because the sentence was finished. If somebody um, commits a crime and they have to go to jail for three years or whatever, they serve their sentence, three years are up, and then they go free, right? Because why? Justice is served. They're free. They're released. That's the resurrection. Justice was served. We are justified. So here's the cool thing. The righteousness of Jesus then gets transferred to us. We get to share in the the goodness, the rightness, the the beauty, the love of Jesus by faith in him. Just reaching out our hands and receiving that as a gift. Lord, I I need that grace. I need that forgiveness. I need that cleansing. I need to be clean and pure and good again. Would you forgive my sins and make me right through Jesus? That's, that's faith. That's the faith. These are the things that, that we believe. If you don't believe this, uh, the Bible says that you're still under the condemnation for sin. You're still, you still have guilt. You still have shame. And what are you going to do with that? We can't get rid of it ourselves. Somebody else has to act for us, and that's, that's why Jesus came. So believing that he takes our sin on himself and that we get his goodness is the gospel, simply. And then when we continue to live by faith in him, we live the rest of this life on earth. And when heaven returns and heaven and earth are joined, we'll live for eternity living in the light of the the grace of the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. This is the faith passed on to us. But... As Abraham demonstrates, we're not just believing facts. We're not just believing doctrine or data, you know, about this gets transferred to that and so on. It has to, it has to be real and alive in you. It's a, faith is trusting God to keep a promise. It's relational. It's trusting in him to do for us what he promised to do for us. That's why when we talk about Uh, Faith, we talk about it as being something alive, that we live by faith. We're not just living out the faith, a noun. We live by faith, you know, verb, adverb, etc. So back to Hebrews. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that was where he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And I love that reminder. She considered him faithful. 
that our faith in God is meant to demonstrate that we believe he is faithful. And when people see our faith, when we see us living by faith, what they're seeing is not simply, hey, there go consistent Christians. What they see is there are good people who are demonstrating that they believe God is faithful. That's how we glorify God. Showing our neighbors, coworkers, family members, the nations, ultimately, God is faithful. He sent Jesus. And so when you think about living by faith, um, I, I, I was convicted and struck once uh, when I first read Erwin McManus. He's a, a Baptist pastor in L.A. And he wrote that the church tends to live by, quote, the faith, more than it lives by faith. And the goal has become to make sure beliefs are doctrinally sound and people have a growing knowledge of the Bible. And those are absolutely important, essential things. We really do need to know what we believe. We really do need to know God's word to us. But also that we are to live in a dynamic, fluid relationship with God through which we learn to hear the voice of God and move in response to him. So that faith becomes this active thing, not just cerebral thing, not just what we believe, but what we do. Yes, we believe Jesus gives us righteousness, he forgives our sins, and then we live in light of God's mercy so that others can have a view of God's mercy. Faith feels foolish. That's why we sometimes struggle to step out in faith. Um, you know, um, for the past couple of weeks, I guess, I've been driving in to church on Sunday mornings and I turn the corner at Red Top and there's uh, the lady in the median. Did, you, did anybody pass her on the way today? Everybody's nodding your head. All right. So I'm like, all right, this is ridiculous. I can't keep passing this woman. And, um, and I thought, I just, all right, I'm going to go take her a bottle of water and just acknowledge the dignity of her humanity and have a conversation with her. Who's, I can at least affirm that. Um, but then I got to thinking, no, I got to get in. I got to get ready for the sermon. I got to get ready for Sunday. But I'm like, no, I just, I think God's calling me to do this by faith. And so I parked at the Waffle House this morning, um, 10 before 8, and took her a bottle of water and said, hey, my name's Essen. What's your name? She went, um, <laughs> Jennifer. <laughs> so I don't know if Jennifer's her name. But anyway, she, she says her name's Jennifer. Um, she's from Westchester, um, Pennsylvania. And, uh, and she's been in town for about a month, you know. And we just, I just got to talking and saying, well, what do you need? You know, well, you know, place, place to stay tonight. And, you know, I'm collecting money to have a place to stay. And, you know, people sometimes bring me food. And I'm like, that's great. So um, if we can find something maybe a little more stable for you, would you be open to that? She said, yeah. So all the while I'm standing in the median you know, of, of Ludowit Boulevard, feeling kind of foolish. Like, should I be doing this? I don't know. This seems weird. But when we feel foolish, that keeps us from living by faith. Fear keeps us from living by faith. There are things that God's been, you know, slowly at work, very patiently, saying, Essen, you, you know, do this. Essen, think about this. Essen, you know, to be pursuing this. And I'll, I'm like, well, I'll get to that. <laughs> because I'm afraid or I just, I feel too full. I got too much going on. And it seems like, you know, Jesus doesn't leave us alone. And I think maybe you're feeling some of this too. There are places in our lives, not all the time, but, you know, there are definitely moments and they repeat themselves where we become very aware, I'm supposed to do something. 
God's calling me to something. He wants me to live by faith. He wants me to trust him with something that doesn't make sense, that I don't know how it's going to resolve. I don't know where the resources are going to come from. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But I know he's faithful. Are any of you feeling like God's calling you to be a missionary? Are any of you feeling like God's calling you to participate in some ministry in some way, but you've thought, I don't have time for that, or I don't want to get involved, or, you know, that seems messy? Um, Any of you feeling called to adopt? Work with foster kids? You know, what would that look like? What about work? Um, You're feeling called to change jobs? But you're worried, I don't know what to do, and, you know, that, I don't know the answers. And so God keeps saying, you know, I've got something else for you, and maybe you need to switch. Others of you, like, you're switching jobs every year, and God's telling you to stay <laughs> um, and tough it out and believe that he's faithful. Um, some of you, uh, maybe at work, you're, you're knowing something's wrong, something doesn't make sense, it smells like smoke, and uh, God's calling you to be the whistleblower. Oh, but if I do that... I don't know what's going to happen. Um, what do you do about the paycheck you bring home from work? Um, you know, all right, there's this tithe thing. Um, Christians always talk about money or whatever. No, you know, let's get past that. Jesus talked a lot about money. And the reason why he talked a lot about money is because he was incredibly jealous and passionate for primary allegiance in our hearts. And he said that the number one competition... For your heart allegiance, my heart allegiance is money. Can we trust him with our money? Can we trust him with our giving? Um, Relationships, you know. uh, Can we trust him? Can we live by faith, even though we don't know how it's going to work out, even though I'm afraid of the consequences, I know that it would be good for my soul. I know that scripture tells me, confess your sins to one another. I need accountability. I need to go to somebody with something that I can't seem to get a hold of in my life. And I'm scared to death of this, but I need to live by faith. For others of you, it's forgiveness. It feels powerful. You've got leverage over somebody as long as they know that, you know, they're under your thumb. But once you release them from that, and you tell them they're forgiven, I don't hold against you anymore, you're good, I'm going to forget it the way God forgets it. As far as the east is from the west, you feel powerless. Now what am I going to do? Maybe I should believe that God's faithful. Um, some of you need to confront. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a friend. Uh, you're worried about the reaction. Um, you know, Anyway, I'm running out of ideas. I think you get the picture, though. I mean, God reminds us. He, and if we put him off, he's gonna, just going to keep poking. <laughs> so why not just do it, right? You and me both. This is our denominational magazine. It comes out quarterly. It's called By Faith. The reason why it's called By Faith is because this is an account every three months of what people in our denomination are doing to make their faith visible, you, you don't get a story written about you if you're just sort of sitting at home believing great doctrine. <laughs> People want to know how you're glorifying the faithfulness of God. The end of this uh, 
this previous article, we, uh, there's an art, a very simple short article about Dave and Jen Bradshaw uh, in Florida. He's a pastor. They've got four kids. Um, he got to uh, be friends with a guy who was in kind of rough shape. Uh, had a girlfriend, was living with her. They had two kids, uh, Faith and Hope. He got arrested, was in jail. She had the kids, but just um, it was a bad situation. Uh, the kids were pulled out of, um, of her custody, and then Dave and Jen got legal, legal guardianship of Faith and Hope. And while the couple has always talked about adopting, they are finding that caring for children in crisis and the emotional roller coaster of dealing with an unpredictable legal system can be hard, lonely work. We know it's the right thing to do, but it's hard to battle your own sin and selfishness and idealism, said Jen Bradshaw, who manages a household of four children ages 8 to 15 in addition to the two toddlers. The girls are sad and living in brokenness. They miss their mother, but we're planting seeds. We shower them with love and are trying to build trust. Dave tells the story of the girls being scared from the fireworks on New Year's Eve. I told them not to be afraid, that they were safe and that we love them. And Faith, the three-year-old, asked, Dave, do you love me? Does Jen love me? Does Mommy love me? Mommy left me. And she cried. Uh, And Dave held her and promised, we're not going to leave you. We love you. And God loves you. If there's a reason to do this, says Dave, that's it, to demonstrate the gospel in action to these girls, the gospel that God loves you and he keeps his promises. If there's a reason for us to live by faith, it's not to score points, it's not to check boxes, it's not to get stars in the sticker chart in heaven. We live by faith because it shows the world that God is faithful. Let's pray. God, would you give us grace to live consistently uh, in your kingdom? We love you. um, We believe in you. uh, We pray that you'd help our unbelief. um, Be patient with us through our struggle to believe your promises uh, and your power and your presence. We thank you that through Jesus, we are in a right relationship with you through what he did for us. And as we grow and understanding and living in light of that, I pray that people more and more could see uh, the reality of your mercy and your faithfulness, uh, not only to us, but, but through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.